I don't care if my students can get the right answer. What I care is that they understand what that means and that they can use that to understand the world. And that ideally they could then use that to like go and do something. Dr. Izilam is an assistant professor of chemistry at Fort Lewis College. His research focuses on photocatalysis and photochemistry in the hopes of creating a sustainable green future for our planet. But his passion is discovered is teaching and he's found a fantastic place to help students towards their own bright futures. Thanks for joining us for this season five episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. I'm your host, Paolo Brayuca with Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Izzy about his own introduction to science and the teachers who planted the seeds for his eventual career in chemistry. I can tell you like for a fact that the reason that I ended up going into chemistry um, happened in like senior year of high school. Um, but but I, I want to go back a little bit before that to sometime around like I think ninth or tenth grade where I like absolutely failed chemistry. It's because I wasn't paying attention. It's because me and my friends were like hanging out in the back of the classroom playing on our Nintendo DSs instead of instead of doing chemistry. So like I don't know if that was necessarily like a matter of um, capability, but it was certainly a matter of like interest and um, and drive, which I just like at the time didn't have have like in you know ninth grade. So sometime around that time, my um, I had a, a math teacher named Mr. Sweeney who kind of pulled me aside. He basically was telling me like you know like he, like he believed in me, but like you know I needed to stop the the bad behavior, and and he was right. I think that that was where, where it kind of pushed me into some, some, a different direction. I started to get into sports. He actually ended up being my soccer coach. And I also started to get more interested in mathematics and, and, and science. So I, I went to a, um, a school in, in central Massachusetts uh, called the Advanced Math and Science Academy Charter School. Um, so we were the first class through that, that school as it was founded. And so there was, there was all sorts of like ups and downs, but it was a really, really awesome um, education that I got because like all the way from like seventh grade through 12th grade, we were looking at like chemistry and physics and biology. We had this every single year as opposed to a lot of times it'll be like this year you have chemistry, this year you have that. So this is like a lot of repeated exposure. And right before I, uh, I graduated high school, I was taking AP chemistry and AP calculus. And um, because oftentimes my mom couldn't pick my brother and I up at the end of, of the, the school day because she was working, my chemistry professor was actually like very, very nice in, in retrospect. And he would, while he was like getting stuff ready for the next day, he would let me hang out, hang out and do my, my homework in the, the lab slash classroom. And the thing that really sticks in my mind that I mentioned before was one day we were setting up um, voltaic cells, copper, zinc batteries. And so he had me make the copper nitrate solution, the zinc nitrate solution, and then the ammonium nitrate solution for the, the, um, for the salt bridge. And then like putting that, that together, and it's, it's a simple thing, but like, you know, putting that together for the first time and seeing the voltage output and seeing that be exactly what it was like, was, was like a, such a, such a cool um, experience to me. Um, so, so when I think back, I think that's really what made me say like, I wanna do this. I wanna like see where this goes. And I applied to a few schools in central Massachusetts. Um, and the one I ended up going to was in Worcester, Mass. It's called Clark University. And that is where I started to, like, really, really seriously get into chemistry. 
the professor that I took general chemistry with, um, Professor Louis Smith, um, mentioned that he had spots open for paid research opportunities that summer. So summer after my first year. And he said, if anyone wants to, to like hear more about that, to come and talk to him. And I just like went straight up to the front of the room after the class, um, to the front of the lecture hall and talked to him. And, and, he, and he told me about this nanomaterials research that he had going in this lab. Um, some of them were like these, these perovskites and some of them were copper oxide nanoparticles and told me about the scanning electron microscopy and like x-ray diffraction and all of these methods that you could use to really like see things at, at nanoscales. And, and so I, I did, I did my, my first research experience that summer and I like kind of took off from there. It's, but it was, it's yeah. incredible. Like how, you know, who you are and who you become in life depends on who you meet on your path. Um, right. And, uh, I can never put a finger on whether this is luck or whether this is design in some ways or whether, you know, in, in some ways I like to think that you get opportunities all the time and then you need to be able to catch them. What's your perspective? I think there's a lot of luck involved in it. I think that you certainly like, like it's, it's important to, you know, grab opportunities when you can, if you can, if you have the, the means and the energy to do so. But I think that a lot of times there's a huge luck component to that. And, and a lot of being at the right place at the right time is being at a place in the first place, That's which sounds a little, a little tautological, but I think you know what I mean. Like if you're not putting yourself in a position to have opportunities, then those opportunities don't come. Those opportunities don't come when you're just like, if I was just to sit in this room for the rest of my life, like, you know, I need, I need to like go do something, um, be out there. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah, um, and, and, it takes, and it takes courage, right? Because you need to you need to jump on those, and then you know, uh, I mean, we all we all go through these phases, uh, and and it's really hard if you don't have like the structure around you who supports you, or you know, you don't have an awesome figure in the family or somebody you know who can tell you how it goes. You know, you're a be on your own, and you rely on you know who you meet on your path, like you said. And it's, uh, you know, I I think uh, this is a fantastic story. You, you you took grad school at some point and you did your PhD at Boulder, am I right? That's correct, yeah. So so I I um I remember sitting next to my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and deciding that I was going to apply to graduate school. And it was like, let's say today, like Friday, and the last GRE I could take was Tuesday. And so I like made that decision. <laughs> this is not how anyone should do this, but I made that decision. <laughs> you should be, you should, Yeah. But, but I made that decision, I went in, I took the GRE, I got all my, my, stu my stuff in. Um, and I applied to, I think, six programs. Five of them were material science programs because I had sort of this like material science research background. And I got rejected from all five of those material science programs. And I'm not sure why. And my, my hypothesis was because I didn't have enough math. I'd only taken through calculus too. But I got into the physical chemistry program at CU Boulder. And C. Boulder has a really good physical chemistry program, and there's a lot of math. I, I, I say this a lot to people, sort of in a tongue-in-cheek way, but I'm not really sure why they accepted me to that program. <laughs> um, because my first couple of years there were not smooth sailing. When I was taking the um, beginning graduate classes, I had to teach myself differential equations and linear algebra and multivariable calculus because these were things that i i had brushed on them in classes but i'd never like i couldn't do the homeworks that we needed to do solving these various um quantum mechanical problems but i thought it was important to be doing the difficult thing to be doing the hard thing 
it was like a challenge that I sought to overcome. And, and I got into physical chemistry because I was so like interested, like when you take an undergraduate physical chemistry course or any, any course where there's all these equations that get thrown at you, right? Where do they come from? How do you derive those equations from like, like, like I had no idea how you go from like, what, whatever it is, I didn't really understand. Like, like what is the research that leads to you putting up equations like, you know, like, 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 where does that come from? And so, so that's really why I wanted to go down the, the PCAM route, because I felt like that was like, I wanted more depth to the, to the world. And I felt like physical chemistry was a nice, is, a nice is it, way. Is it how you teach you these days? You know, trying to get a perspective on how you get to these equations and you know, what, what is the, the mathematics really means in the real world. As much as possible. I, I, I have a lot of trouble putting an equation on the board and not spending time really talking about that and trying to find as many analogies as possible to explain like what it means so it's not just blob blah 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 blob and like stick numbers in there and get the right answer like i don't i don't care if my students can get the right answer what i care is that they understand what that means and that they can use that to understand the world and that ideally they could then use that to like go and do something because of the ways in which I, I struggle with math a lot, I think I really have an appreciation for like that, uh, that students will be hitting that wall. And so I like, even in general chemistry, I really, really always try to make it, make it something physical, make it something like real. It feels like a new generation of scientists are getting much, much better at communicating and hence probably at teaching. Uh, would you agree with that? Or am I just generalizing a little too much here? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I have, other friends that are professors that have, you know, that, that I was friends with in graduate school that have gone to different um, schools. And I, I think that they feel a similar way about this. So maybe it's, it's, a, it's a more modern approach to it. The, the professor who was my advisor for the last four years of graduate school, Neil Stamrauer at CU Boulder, the reason why I joined his group so I, I was originally in another group and I got kicked out after I filled my orals. We can talk about that. <laughs> but but uh, the, the reason I, I, I wanted to be in, in Niels's group and the reason he was actually on the committee that failed me. And the reason I asked him to be on the committee was because I taught a general chemistry for majors lab with him for two years. And I had never seen the laboratory professor come into the lab. And Niels came into every single lab section and interacted with the, the students that were doing the experiments and asked them questions. And he was so excited about science and he, and, the, and he just like passed that on to the students. And I was like, I want to be like this. And, 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 and I, um, I, I graded, I TA'd graded grading, sorry, I TA'd in a grading capacity for him for physical chemistry for quantum. And that when I, when I was sitting in that class, that's when I was like, I want to be a professor because like, I just, love the way that he described quantum mechanics. And at this point, I'd taken quantum three ways in graduate school. I'd taken it um, in the chemistry department. I'd taken it in the physics, like their intro quantum. And then I'd also taken um, a computational course in, in the chemistry department that was uh, very quantum based. And so like at this point, I, I, I really felt like I had this nice perspective of it. And I was starting to really like understand this. Um, and then it was his class that really cemented it, his undergraduate level, junior level quantum mechanics class, where I was just like, this is so clear and so like so well done. And and I was just like, this is like the level of clarity that I want to.
be able to like provide like like at some point I'd like to be standing in that position. That. Yeah, and you feel how powerful that is on you, right? And so you say, hey, if you, if I can do for other people what he's able to do for me, you know that that's really powerful. Right? Example, example. That's that's the uh, that's the thing. Role models. What were you What were you working research wise? Um, you know, I see you both. What was your sort of science based on? The project that I ended up working on, the real reason that I wanted to go in there, or the thing that really excited me about that was that I was going to have the opportunity to collaborate with a friend of mine from undergrad. So two of us went to CU Boulder. The other person who went to CU Boulder uh, was Blaine McCarthy. And she was working in, um, she, she got her PhD in Dr. Garrett Miyake's lab. I knew that I would have the opportunity to collaborate with her. She was the one making the molecules and she was the one that was using these photocatalysts doing the organocatalyzed atom transfer radical polymerization on them. So, so there's a couple of things that were really interesting to me about this. One of them was that I was going to, I was going back full circle to this method, this controlled radical polymerization method, atom transfer radical polymerization, where now I was going to be able to look in on the mechanistic side of it from this like photocatalyzed, organocatalyzed atom transfer radical polymerization. And I was looking in from like the mechanistic and photophysical side of things, characterizing the photocatalyst. But an important part of that to me was that I was going to be able to work with Blaine because she's like, easily one of the smartest and most driven um, scientists I've ever met. So I was like, if I get to work with her, like I'm totally on board. <laughs> so, so, so that was, that was really huge for me. And that, and that was an excellent collaboration um, all, all throughout. And now I understand where your sort of current research interests, uh, you know, start from. So it's, you're, you, you basically worked on photocatalysis in some ways since your years at CU Boulder. Yeah. My PhD, thesis is called like me mechanistic photochemical and um, sorry, mechanistic photochemistry and photophysics of phenoxazine photocatalysts. That's basically what I did is, is, is I, I investigated the photophysics of a variety of these phenoxazine um, catalysts where there's different enaryl and core um, substituents because just making those small changes, this architecture, this like this molecular architecture actually has like these, this really, really rich um, photophysics where like there's different like singlet excited states you need to worry about. There's different triplet excited states you need to worry about. They they live in deoxygenated dimethylacetamide. The, the triplets live for like a millisecond or longer. And so, you, and, and they're really, really highly reducing. And so they're really, really excellent molecules, really, really excellent catalysts to do visible light driven reducing chemistry and and so like the substrate that i was looking at there was um a, an atom transfer radical polymerization initiator um a diethyl 2 bromo 2 methyl malinate so it's a tertiary um, alkyl bromide that that you can reductively cleave that alkyl bromide bond by hitting it with a, a reducing enough um species and and so so, so before I could go in and start looking at what we call activation, that, that step of, of um, creating a, a, a radical by cleaving that, that alkyl halide bond, um, before we could go and do that, we really needed to understand the photophysics of the molecules that were going to be doing that. Because really what you want to have is like, a, or like what I wanted to have, what um, I think all of us working on this project wanted to have is a holistic picture of like, once a photon gets absorbed, where does that energy go? How does it partition? And like, where, yeah, where, where does it go? But also how does it get there? And how you, 
and how molecular structure considerations and environmental effects impact the efficiency of, let's say, just this, this um, homolytic bond cleavage process. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. I steal 30 seconds from your listening for a reminder and a request. If you work in a research laboratory, you'll probably use alpha-azan and aqueous organic chemicals at some point. Please remember that you can still find them all under the new Thermoscientific Chemicals brand on thermofficio.com or from your preferred distributor. And this is the request. If you like this podcast, why don't you share it with a friend or a colleague? Let's share the love for science. And now back to our conversation. It's a very exciting and hectic field, right? I mean, this, this looks like the future to me. F- philosophically, I'm particularly fascinated because if, if I think about chemistry, you know, nature does it photochemically, starting from fully oxidized species in a sort of reduction direction. The way chemistry, you know, wet chemistry, lab chemistry, you know, was born, has developed over the last, you know, de- few decades, a uh, few, more than a few, right, uh, is, is, is kind of the opposite. We are starting from fully, fully reduced, oil-derived starting points, right? We kind of oxidize them to make them more complex. It's, and, and, and then you use heat as a sort of source of energy, right? This, we're kind of coming back to a more efficient way of doing it, right? Because that's, uh, there's a reason why nature does it this way. And I know it's just getting into philosophy is always a bit of a slippery slope here, but I, uh, you know, do you ever think about these things? Yeah, constantly. Because like, so, so, so now that I've moved to my current position and, you know, I don't have an ultra fast spectroscopy lab. I don't have a nanosecond transient absorption setup. I'd really like to, I've got my sights set on that one, but, <laughs> but um, because I'm now less able to access those kinds of resources and less able to access some of those excited state mechanistic parts, there's a portion of, of, of the work I was describing before that I got interested in at the end, at the end of my PhD, which was like the quantum yield of a photoreaction. So that is just, you know, the efficiency with which one photon in, one photo product out, that would be a hundred percent quantum yield. And then there's so many ways in which that energy can get lost along the way and might not go into an electron transfer reaction. Like, you know, there's the photophysical aspects, like where the, you know, the excited states can deactivate, but then there's also like different types of non-productive quenching processes. There's back electron transfer, even if you do the electron transfer. So there's all these things that go into whether or not you efficiently do the reaction you want to, even if you absorb a photon. And so um, for the system I was looking at, I developed an instrument to to study this. And that that sounds complicated, but basically I I shined a well-tempered LED into an HP 8452 UV-Vis that was signed off on its quality control inspection the year I was born. And like, and, and I just took, um, I, I set up the, the sample in, in a certain way with my photocatalyst in there and then just watched spectral features change while it was being irradiated by that LED, by that steady state light. The, the reason that this was useful is because these phenoxazine, um, once they've reduced something, their radical cations are actually very visibly absorptive too. And so um, you can watch that radical cation signal just grow in 
And basically, just if you know the light intensity and, and you know uh, how to get the concentration of the, the radical cation, so you need like a molar absorptivity of that species, then you can figure out the, the, the rate at which protoproducts being generated and you know the rate at which light's going in and you can back out a quantum yield of that. And this is something that like actually has not been done that much in the past. And, and part of this is because photoredox catalysis is sort of a new thing. Like last 15 years, it's, you know, it's really exploded since then. But a lot of the photochemistry before that was sticking a bunch of uh, reactants in a pot and shining UV light on it. And so you couldn't do these kinds of, of studies where you were just looking at it with like a UV vis spectrometer, because there's all sorts of like starting materials and products and stuff in really high concentrations, just being blasted with light. And, and everything would have been in like a probably like a maybe not a solvent window, but like this super, super absorptive sample. And, and that's not to say that you, you can't do that, but it, it wasn't something like if you look through the literature, like just looking at like visible products of electro photochemical processes has only been done a few times and it's become a little bit more popular. But this is an easy thing to do. You need a UV vis and you need a light source, right? This is an inexpensive thing to do. And, and you know, at an institution where you have, you don't have like R1 levels of, of, um, of resources, you need to be really smart about um, the kinds of projects. And then also because you're working with, you don't have graduate students, you need to be doubly smart about how to set up projects where they're tractable. Setting up a, a photoreaction in a cuvette, you know, micro pipettes and, and sparging or preparing something in a glove box. That's all something that's fairly easy to do. You need to do it carefully. And then sticking that in the UV vis and irradiating it and taking time points. That's all something that, that's definitely tractable. Um, but importantly, it's sort of working backwards from where I had worked previously. Now I'm going to start by looking at the quantum yields of processes. I can say, hey, here's the efficiency of this process. Why is it that? So then like, either looking at existing processes, a lot of, a lot of, um, of papers, they, they look a lot more like classic synthetic papers, a lot of the photoredox papers where they're like, here, we set this up in a certain way, we shine this light on it, and this was the yields of the reaction. But that's not talking about, the, this is going back to your question, that's not talking about the actual quantum yield, and the quantum yield is an actual energetic efficiency of the process. So just because you got 100% yield after irradiating it for 10 hours, with a with a Kessel lamp doesn't mean that each one of those photons was used efficiently. There is a huge amount of promise for this methodology for actually truly green chemistry because you can drive these reactions in principle with the sun. You could actually do solar photochemistry with this. That's the ultimate source of energy. And that's, that's our best chance of really reducing energetic expenditure in the chemical industry. And in the United States, the chemical, the bulk chemical industry accounts for one ninth of our expenditure. So it's, so it's, it's a huge, huge field where, where like, if you could cut some of those processes costs, their energetic costs down, that's, that's massive. Something that you need to understand for those processes is how efficiently you're harvesting energy to do what you want to do. The kinds of research that I'd really like to do is to take a process to carefully me measure its quantum yield, where I, where I really understand all the energy in to, en to products out, and then to do an analogous reaction thermally, because that's when you could really make those kinds of judgments that you're talking about. Or like, let's say like electrocatalysis is another field that's really taking off. 
Um, what about an electro-driven catalytic process versus a photo-driven catalytic process? Because in that case, you could imagine driving both of those with a solar cell. Which one of them is more efficient and why? Do you think chemistry will look fundamentally different in maybe one or two decades? I, I think it already looks fundamentally different. And I'm going to kind of like cop out on this by talking about my collaborator's work. So Garrett Miyake at, at Colorado State University. So the last project I, I worked on in graduate school was um, related to this organocatalyzed birch reduction um, that his, his group has developed. And so a typical birch reduction is done at liquid nitrogen temperatures, right? With, 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 um, with liquid ammonia, which is, you get that by cooling it down that far. So you're in cryogenic temperatures with liquid ammonia, and then you have sodium, or lithium, or potassium. So it's, it's gnarly, and it takes a lot of energy. Nobody wants to scale up this stuff, obviously. You know, you know, you don't yeah, and that, that's a terrifying prospect to yeah. scale up something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. Like, but, but the reason that's, that's necessary is if you, have a, if you have a target that you need to reduce, like benzene, for instance, or fluorinated molecules, right? CF bonds, you need a solvated electron. So, so, so far as we know, or you need to be really, really tricky. There's ways to get around some of this stuff if you're really, really tricky with certain um, excited state processes. And um, Oliver Vanger's group does a lot of really cool stuff in that regard. But liquid ammonia, cryogenic temperatures, lithium versus room temperature, methanol, benzoperylene, organic photocatalyst, and, and visible light. And, and so, so like that is transformative. And, and, they've, and they've published some papers on this, and there's a couple others coming out that are really showing just how transformative that is. And it's exciting, right? And you're able to work on exciting research in, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult circumstances, in a way. You know, you said it yourself, you, when, when you don't get big money, you need to get massively creative, right? And, uh, um, you know, the way, but still, you know, even in a sort of smaller institution like Purdue, you can still be at the forefront of research and you know you have very good publications and you're working on extremely interesting pieces of work which is which is fantastic do you ever miss you know maybe being in a sort of a fancier institution or I mean a bigger name with more resources available uh, was it more of a well something that happened to you you know finding yourself doing research at Port Lewis or was it a proper proper choice that you know you're you're happy Yes, I missed some of like the what I would call like high tier research. The philosophy of research at a primarily undergraduate institution like Fort Lewis is, is fundamentally different, though, because I don't care about writing 50 papers in the next 30 years or whatever. My purpose here is to make scientists. And I think that that is what I do well mentoring those students, onboarding them, getting them excited about some of these things and preparing them to then go on and, and be much better scientists than I am, <laughs> basically. The research is really part of the teaching. I can like take on essentially apprentices and have this like close instruction. I can really, really like cultivate their understanding of certain things. And so like, I would love to be able to imbue students with the kinds of knowledge that would allow them to very easily be able to move into a lab that does like photoredox catalysis for graduate school or like solar cell um, 
photophysical stuff or, or you know, um, uh, like disensitized solar cell design and, and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in order to do that, I, I have to kind of fundamentally change curriculum of what's typically taught. Like in my general chemistry class, I end with electrocyclic ring closures because it's actually like a really, really awesome culmination of everything we talk about in general chemistry. When you talk about orbitals, you talk about molecular orbital theory, then you go and you look at the Huckel theory stuff and it all actually just falls perfectly in place. But it's usually not something you talk about until like organic chemistry or like an advanced organic course. But it's but it's, it just uses principles of general chemistry and it really gives students like a, a, a principle of that. So like the photochemistry gets in there. The the photochemistry is in my, in my analytical course. We're talking about fluorescence quenching, talking about triplet, triplet annihilation, up conversion. So like, I think that modern chemists should know about this. Um, sorry, that was a bit of a circuitous. No, it answer. was it was it was a great answer, and it is amazing to see how in depth you have thought about this, and you know, and and it's incredible the passion you speak about it, right? And it's uh, uh, and it's great. I'm 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 sure your students are delighted, and and you know, you will play such an important role in you know, for, forming, uh, you know, the next generation of, of chemists and scientists. And, the, you know, we need, we need a lot of people like yourself um, because you can really make a difference in, in, in students' life. And it, well, this is really fantastic. And I think I've never had anybody in this podcast, you know, better position than yourself to ask my usual final question, <laughs> which is always the same, which is uh, what piece of advice you would give to somebody who's just starting in their career, just maybe a young student or just getting in and out, out of school and sort of trying to decide what they want to be. I don't think you're gonna like my answer because, <laughs> you know, I interact with a lot of young students, first years and so on. Um, and when they come to me with these kinds of questions, I tell them that I'm not in a position to tell them what to do, to give them advice because I'm still figuring it out myself. And I tell them my story. I try to give them some perspective. But the, the main message I think that I, get that I hope to get across to them is that they need to follow what interests them. And they need to follow what excites them and what gives them joy to, to engage in. For instance, there's a lot of times, like if you go into graduate school, for the last project I was doing, when I was putting together um, my paper looking at the... Uh, the mechanism of organic catalyzed ATRP. There were days when I was coming in at like four o'clock in the morning to get some spectroscopic measurements going and leaving at like eight o'clock at night. And, and because I was so ex like interested in that and so I had so much like buy-in to that project and so much connection to it, I didn't mind doing that. It was like, I had to do it. It needed to get done. There were questions I needed to answer. And, and so like, you kind of need to have something that excites you to the point, it doesn't feel like it's sapping energy from you. Cause anything that feels like, like if you're going in every day and the thing that you're doing is a slog and it feels like it's just draining you and you just don't want to be there. That's, that's just like, it's just toxic. I've had those experiences also. And so identifying like things that excite you and things that bring you energy is really, really what it needs to be. And so, so I, like a lot of students will, or sometimes students will come to me and they'll be like, hey, I'm interested in this, but like, maybe they don't, maybe they have like a misconception about it or they have like a preconception about it. And, and I, I just tell them that 
just follow their heart and do what makes them happy. That was Dr. Izzy Lam, Assistant Professor of Chemistry at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. If you enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Lam's book, video, podcast, and other content recommendations. Look in the episode notes for a URL where you can access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. And if you haven't yet this season, please consider leaving us a positive rating or review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps more people find our show. This episode was produced by Sarah Briganti, Matt Ferris, and Matthew Stock. 